You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, following the death of Stephen, there in Acts chapter 7, a wave of persecution began to be unleashed upon the church. It seems that the religious leaders were growing in their jealousy. It, of course, began with Christ and his public ministry, and it carried over now to the church. They had a problem with the popularity of Christ and and as well a problem with the popularity of the apostles and of the church. And so Stephen's strong and bold message to the religious establishment in Acts chapter 7 infuriated them to the point that the hatred that was lying beneath the surface reared its ugly head and Stephen lost his life. Saul held the garments of those who were stoning Stephen to death. And with that, a stated position of persecution crept into Judaism there in Israel. And with that, we pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. This clarifies for us something about chapter 7. When he was holding the coats or attending to the coats in chapter 7, there was still a question. You know, does this figure, Saul, approve of the death of Stephen? Does he see himself as in support of this act, or is he merely there as an attendant in the moment, uh, doing his best to keep his cool. Well, here we learn that Saul approved of his execution. So it says there that, and there arose on on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now this word scatter comes from a Greek verb that is used to refer to sowing seed. So, of course, you might remember the parables that Christ told of the spreading of the kingdom or the spreading of the gospel. And he likened the word of the kingdom, the word of God, the word of the gospel to seed. And so here you have the church now scattered like the scattering of seeds all throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And Christ had told them at the beginning of this book that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, they haven't done the ends of the earth thing yet, and they hadn't even at this point done the Samaria or Judea thing yet. But here, through the persecution, they begin to be scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, there is an exception that Luke records in verse 1. The church was scattered, but not, he says there, the apostles. He says, except the apostles. Now, that leaves us to wonder why the apostles weren't scattered in this wave of persecution. Perhaps it's possible that the 
apostles felt obligated to the work in Jerusalem. Or perhaps they were so popular that the persecutors dare not touch them at this stage. Or it's possible that the persecutors thought that there was such a strong power with the apostles that they feared to bring persecution against them. But for whatever reason, the apostles were not scattered from Jerusalem. They were able to remain there. So they scattered from that region. Now, it is important to make a note that helps us understand the later church in Jerusalem in that as people like Stephen died or Philip, as we're going to see in this chapter, left the church in Jerusalem and went on into other territories, the church in Jerusalem would become more and more Jewish and exclusively Jewish in Jerusalem. Even the Greek living types of people, the Hellenistic types of people would probably also be scattered. And so that has bearing on what the church would look like later on in the book of Acts. Now in verse two, it says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So some devout Jews who probably were open-minded towards the Christian message volunteered to bury Stephen's body, like Joseph of Arimathea did for Jesus. And so they, they bury him, they make great lamentation for him, but we have this note from Luke that Saul was ravaging the church. It's like a rampage, uh, like a wild boar destroying a vineyard or a crop, Saul was persecuting, ravaging, destroying the church and actually going house to house. And so, you know, once it goes into your house like that, it brings a real terror upon you in the church. You know, the fear that even in my own home, I'm not safe. And in fact, I'm, I might be least safe in my home, but you know, what else are you going to do? You have to go home. And so he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, the irony of all this is that he's going to be thrown into prison for the same reason over and over again later on in his life. And he's going to have more joy at that time of his life than he does now. But here, hatred has filled the heart of Saul, and he is bringing great wrath upon the church. Now, verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So what Luke is telling us is that as they traveled, they preach. He, he says they went about preaching the word. So as they traveled, they preached. Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples. And part of that means that we are to be making disciples as we go through life talking of who Christ is to us. But of course, for our purposes here, in the it's fascinating to see that in the face of opposition, the word of God grew. Luke is very careful to make note of that, that even in the face of all this persecution, they went about preaching the word. Now, Philip, the other major deacon of Acts chapter 6, Stephen being one of them and Philip being another, 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, this is a huge step for the gospel at that time. At that time, Jews and Samaritans basically lived in a cultural divide. It had been happening for for some years at this point. One biblical illustration or insight to this comes from John chapter 4, when Jesus went to Samaria and visited the woman uh, at the well, if you recall that story. And there was, of course, in the Jewish mindset, an antagonism toward the Samaritan people. Uh, They considered them sort of a half-Jewish betrayers of true Judaism uh, group. And so for Peter to go down there in obedience to Christ's original commission to go into all of the world, and especially from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, this was a major step in in the book of Acts, a major step for the church. And so he went there and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, verse 6, with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Notice that Philip was producing signs. There was healing that was being granted, and there was also power being expressed over the demonic realm. So that helps us see that these gifts were not exclusively possessed by the apostolic band. No, here you have a deacon operating in these powerful gifts, of course, in the in the role of going out. So a small a apostle, of course, at the, at the moment being sent out uh, by the Lord, but not as one of the original apostles of the Lord. And so, you know, here we're seeing him operating in these gifts. And as the people were experiencing all of this, it says in verse 8, beautifully, so there was much joy in that city. But, verse 9, there was a man named Simon. And it seems that there's always a but when God is moving and God is working. And here, the exception is in this man, Simon. This man, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. That's the description that Luke gives of Simon. He had become a somebody there in Samaria. They all, verse 10, paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Somehow, Simon was connected to the demonic realm, and he used that connection to the demonic realm, or perhaps even just to, you know, some kind of card trick kind of magic, some trickery. He used all of that to cause the people there in Samaria to be amazed at him. But when they believe, verse 12, Philip As he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
you know, coming from where Simon had come from, where miracles were trickery or miracles were demonic, he was amazed watching what God was doing through Philip's life. There, of course, is a massive contrast between these two men. One did miracles in demonic power. Another did miracles in divine power. Uh, One proclaimed the self. You know, Simon's whole mission was to promote himself. And one proclaimed Christ. Uh, One brought a result of amazement from the people. That's what it says over and over again. They they were amazed, and, and, and he, like them, was also amazed. But Philip, what he brought was conversion, you know, real, true transformation. But anyways, God was moving there in Samaria uh, through Philip, just a powerful work of his grace. Now, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, why did the apostles send Peter and John to Samaria. Perhaps they went there to recognize the work God was doing through Philip. You know, later Peter is going to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household, which would have been a group of Gentiles. And significantly, when that happened, the leadership of the church there in Jerusalem wanted to investigate. And then if they could, endorse. Uh, What they weren't doing was asking the question, do we approve of this? No, instead what they were asking the question was, is there any way for us to discover what God himself has approved and then for us to get behind the very thing that God has done, the thing that God has approved? So they sent Peter and John down there to Samaria. And then interestingly enough, they began to pray for these new Christians in Samaria that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And the reason that they're praying that is because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. Now, of course, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1 that when you become a believer, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit begins to reside within you immediately Upon conversion, it is called being born again, which is also called being born of the Spirit. So the Spirit takes you and immerses you into the body of Christ, dunks you, baptizes you, if you will, in a spiritual sense, into the body of Christ. But so when Paul and John went there, they weren't asking the question, is the Holy Spirit inside of these people? No, he was, they were asking the question, has the Holy Spirit fallen upon them to give them the gifts of the Spirit to make them useful and powerful in ministry? And of course, Jesus had followed this same outline with his own disciples. He had told them that one day the Holy Spirit would be in them and 
you know, then after he rose from the dead, he breathed on them and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. But then after that moment, Jesus then looked at his disciples later and said, and one day the Holy Spirit will be upon you. He will come upon you. Wait in Jerusalem for that coming upon experience of my spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them 10 days after Christ had ascended, uh, the church became powerful for its mission. So here, Peter and John are looking for that amongst the Samaritan believers. They are looking for the upon experience, the falling on experience of the Spirit onto the brand new church there in Jerusalem. So when they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. These believers with the Spirit inside of them who had already been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus now He lays hands upon them, and they receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon actually saw something external taking place, Uh, Maybe there were gifts being manifested, maybe even the gift of tongues, as with other churches at that time. And so Simon offers money. We now actually call the buying or selling of sacred or religious things simony, which actually was a great plague upon the church or especially the Roman Catholic Church for uh, many years. And so Simon, he offered money to be able to acquire the ability to give the Holy Spirit to people. But Peter said to him, verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness And in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, this is strong language from Peter. But you have to remember, this is an affront to the gospel to try to purchase these elements. Peter felt, I'm sure, that he was at war. And led by the Spirit, this is a wartime thing that he's dealing with. And so he says to this man, many harsh words that are designed to rebuke this request to purchase the gift of God. Now, Simon then said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And, you know, there is the question of whether or not Simon was legitimately saved or not. Luke does not tell us one way or another. In verse 13, the word believe, you know, that Simon believed, that does not always refer to saving faith. Uh, Even in James 2.19, there is the belief of the demonic realm, which was obviously not salvific. Then, you know, we understand that sign-based faith, as it seems Simon may have had, is not a trustworthy faith. And then as well, Luke doesn't record Simon receiving the Spirit. And also, He demonstrated a strong self-centeredness even after his moment of belief. 
and really didn't look like a saved man. The command also to repent that Peter gives to him is normally spoken to the lost. And Peter uses the word perish, which is a very strong word. May your silver perish with you. Uh, It seems to be a word more suitable to eternal condemnation. And it just seems like a description of a lost man here. So personally, I don't know that Simon was actually saved. I tend to think that he that he wasn't. Now, verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So, again, just a powerful work there in Samaria. And uh, the leaders, John and Peter, they, they went home, they returned to Jerusalem, and, and along the way, they were, they were preaching the gospel uh, there with the Samaritans. And the significant thing, of course, as I keep mentioning, is that these Jewish apostles now, and Philip, and the whole move of the church, were preaching to the Samaritan people. This was, again, a huge step for this early church. Now, in verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke records, This is a desert place. The road that he asked Philip to go on was a desert place, 50 miles from Jerusalem. And I want you to see that that this command from the angel of the Lord is a command that defies human logic. Because in Samaria, what you had was a revival. God was working powerfully there in Samaria, doing a unique and fresh work. And God looked at Philip and said, look, this is a, a powerful work that I want you to leave. And I want you to go into this desert place, and I have something for you there and in that place. I think that this is an attitude that is so helpful for God's people, especially God's workers, to have. To say, Lord, in the best of times, I'm willing for you to move my life. So often, Christians and pastors and missionaries will only move and only do the next thing when the thing they are currently doing is hard and fruitless and difficult. But it's much harder to to move And to be movable when things are going well and God's spirit is blessing. So, verse 27, he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, we see here that this man was an official. We learn a lot about him, actually. He was an Ethiopian man there from uh, northern Africa. He was a eunuch, so not a married man, and probably made physically into a eunuch in order to be able to serve as a court official for Candace, who was the queen who governed Ethiopia. And he specifically was an official over her treasury. And he had gone to Jerusalem for worship. 
So probably he's some kind of proselyte or God seeker. And on his way home, he's reading probably a scroll that he acquired there, uh, the prophet Isaiah. And so, you know, even though he would have been forbidden more than likely to enter into the temple because he was a eunuch, uh, he had this affinity, this heart for God. And so the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you are reading? What an open door. He's there alone in his chariot reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, and this is from Isaiah 53 of all places. This is just, you know, God's providence in in leading him to a place like this so clearly and precisely and beautifully about Jesus. And it says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. So he says, you know, how can I understand this unless someone guides me in this? And he declared to Philip what he'd been reading. And and, and apparently these verses from Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, were really verses that intrigued him. And it's not hard to imagine why. He is reading about this one who is cut off. And the question is, Who can describe his generation as life is taken away from the earth? And and this eunuch is maybe even thinking about himself and thinking about how he, as a single man, as a eunuch, was not going to leave any offspring. And maybe wondering, you know, is my life going to be taken away from the earth? Is my generation going to be completely cut off? And of course, for us as Christians, the beautiful joy is that even if we are called to or given a single life and don't have children, we are able to, spiritually speaking, have an incredible heritage in the Lord. We can bear sons and daughters for God. We can leave a generation behind us who is in lo- more in love with the Lord as a result of our lives than before. But he's curious about this statement. And the eunuch, verse 34, said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Uh, So Isaiah 53 was so blatantly about Jesus and his death, his crucifixion, his rejection. But Philip launched out from there and took him through the whole Old Testament, was just teaching him uh, the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, verse 36, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And uh, many manuscripts actually add here. Then Philip said, if you believe in with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So 
as a Jewish proselyte, he probably knew about water baptism as a way to communicate belief in a teaching. And so he wants to be baptized to connect himself to this teaching that Philip is giving to him. This is a natural expression of his commitment uh, to and in Jesus Christ. And when they came up out of the water, verse 39, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So they come out of the water, and the Lord transfers Philip all the way to Azotus, it seems, miraculously. And then he walked and preached all the way until he got to Caesarea, where 20 years later in the book of Acts, We're going to see uh, him still living there with his daughters, his family, and uh, he's actually going to connect with Paul uh, in Caesarea, who, by the way, had driven him to Samaria, which launched him into Gaza. And uh, years later, they're going to have a beautiful moment of reconciliation and peace uh, together as they uh, enjoy some fellowship in Caesarea. But here we're seeing the next step in the movement of the gospel throughout the world. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.